but we see ourselves as the only ones that have the true pipeline network, grassroots network in the communities where our lawyer groups go out and create a working group with African-American groups, Latino groups, LGBTQ plus groups, union groups, plaintiffs groups, and say, well, who would you like to see on the bench? And as a result, the diversity of the people that Biden has chosen is off the charts. 75% women as opposed to Trump, 25%. 70% people of color, 50% women of color. That's our work. And so we're cooking with gas now. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is former U.S. Senator Russ Feingold, now president of the American Constitution Society, a leading progressive legal organization with over 250 chapters around the country. I really enjoyed having the chance to catch up with Senator Feingold about his career and how he's working to rebalance our legal system. You'll want to listen. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Russ Feingold at the American Constitution Society. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Time Plots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Russ, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah, I'm Russ Feingold. I'm currently president of the American Constitution Society, which is an organization of, of lawyers in the United States who want to see the rule of law protected, have a legitimate judiciary, and have our legal system reflect the reality of the 21st century. Prior to this, my career was largely political. I was a Wisconsin state senator for 10 years, a United States senator for 18 years, taught a lot of law school between 2011 and 2020, different law schools around the country. And I was President Obama's special envoy to the Great Lakes region of Africa and the Democratic Republic of the Congo between 2013 and 2015, where we did peace negotiations. So those were some of the highlights of, of my career. It's certainly a career to be proud of. It's the kind of thing where it's hard to imagine when you're a young person how life could go down a path that takes you to something kind of that elevated on many fronts. Can you just tell me a little bit about that path? Like, at what point did you kind of figure out that you were bound for something like a United States senator? I mean, I know you did really well in school and I followed your career, obviously, but how did that develop? I had no idea that I would end up being a United States senator. My, my dream probably was to be a state senator. I didn't think I could do that. I wasn't from a family that had ever run for office or, or had done anything like that. But, you know, a lot of us, and at least my generation, I turned 70 yesterday. 
you know, when I was seven, John F. Kennedy was elected president. He was such an amazing image. A politician was so charismatic, appealing to young people. I was seven years old, and I announced to the family at dinner that I was going to be the first Jewish president. And everybody (laughs) had a good laugh, and they hung that around my neck for, you know, 65 years. That's not going to happen. But, you know, I got excited about politics. And the thing I like to tell you is that people, it's, it's a true story, is that at our dinner table at the Feingold home in Wisconsin, the classic rule, at least in the Midwest, was violated every day, which is there's two things you're not supposed to discuss at the dinner table, religion and politics. And so what happened was my parents loved talking about those things, especially my dad, who loved politics. And they ended up having one of the kids being a senator. The other one was the first woman rabbi in the history of Wisconsin, my little sister, Dina Feingold. So but he never wanted me to go into politics. He thought politics was a dangerous thing in terms of finances, in terms of family, personal security. And, you know, he wasn't wrong, but I was determined to uh, I, I, I got the bug early. Having said that, though, I really felt interested in being a lawyer. And I thought, you know, politics, the odds of me actually being able to go anywhere in politics was very small because I had no family name or anything that would have propelled me. And I wanted to be able to have a good career, even if that didn't work out. And I loved the idea of being a lawyer. So I made that a priority. I worked hard in school and I got two law degrees, one after I was a Badger undergrad, a law degree at Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar and then a law degree at Harvard Law. But I went right back home and my dad wanted me to do the clerkships. And I said, I've been in school long enough. I want to go home. I might run around for office. So I went back to Madison, Wisconsin started practicing law at the largest law firm in the state, Foley and Lardner, but it was a small office. You know, simultaneously started to raise a family and reconnect with all my friends and acquaintances in the state. But um, then I ended up, after three years of that, running for the Wisconsin State Senate. So that's how it happened. Now, the, the things that were really formative, though, for me, in terms of why, why would I want to do this other than somebody calling you senator, it was basically when I was 14. And it was the assassination of John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King, and Robert Kennedy. Three heroes of mine. And I remember when Bobby was shot, because I was so excited that I thought he was going to become president. I was so devastated. I was finishing my ninth grade. I think I had my last exam the next day in math or something. I made a commitment to myself that whatever I did would be somehow, in a small way, continuing his work. So he's kind of my hero. And that motivated me. You know, it's motivated me ever since. You kind of had a distinct political philosophy. What do you think the source of that is? You've mentioned some heroes, but wh- wh- where does what you think about politics and where who you align yourself with and so on come from? It was an amazing marriage of two traditions. One was the Wisconsin progressive tradition associated with fighting Bob LaFollette. Yeah. I, remember father, reading, I remember reading his autobiography when I was that's, a kid. That's right. It's a great yeah. book. Yeah. He, my father was a page in the state capitol. He was a progressive. He wasn't a Democrat. And he, he ran in the progressive ticket for district attorney, got beaten. You know, he, he was a Wisconsin progressive. And that's how many of us identified. And that's the particular tradition that actually a lot of Republicans were progressives too. And it was not necessarily like the divide right now. But I firmly associated myself to this day in that particular tradition in Wisconsin that is very weakened now. But the other tradition was the very progressive form of Judaism that I 
was introduced to in my family, and especially Temple Bethel in Madison, where the rabbi was a rabbi Manfred Swarzynski, who had been in the concentration camp and had gotten out. And it was a very intellectually, socially liberal, anti-war, tremendous place for social justice issues. So these two traditions, even though one was in Janesville and one was in Madison, they intertwined. And, and for me, provided a very uh, thoroughgoing philosophy about, you know, standing up for the little guy, doing justice, that those are the things that, that, that to, to do a mitzvah, you, you have to do justice. And, and I was just imbued with that by these teachers. How did the studies in the law in England and at Harvard affect you in that? I assume that that adds a a kind of a layer of complexity to your thinking as you go through all of that training. How did that affect you? Yeah, that's a complicated thing because, you know, it's, you can look at the law and say, well, what's the right answer? And, you know, you want to be able to have the skill to sort of look at a legal problem and think of it as a logical problem and what makes the most sense. But as you study it more, you realize that the American realists and other philosophers were, were right, that it is often tilted. And it, it takes time, but ultimately, I certainly could see the heavy pro-business emphasis that often cut out the consideration of the general good. And so when I got to that level of, of thinking about it, both at Oxford and at Harvard, I realized that this is not only a way to understand the law and be a good lawyer, but it, it turned out to be extremely helpful as a legislator, both as a state senator and a U.S. senator. There's plenty of lawyers in legislatures. There certainly were then. But for me, being able to think about the law, the distinction between law and morality, when it's appropriate to try to, you know, usually not, in my view, to legislate morality and so on. Those legal principles, and actually I did moral and political philosophy there too at Oxford, that really helped me think through what proper legislation should be. It was useful training, to say the least. I spent some time when I was quite young canvassing uh, for a perg, actually. And oh, I, think you, perg are big. I, yeah. I think you learn a lot in local politics by talking to people at, at their doorstep or along the, those lines. You, that's a bunch of time that you spent in the state Senate, which is a very different thing, I think, than the U.S. Senate. What did you learn about people and Wisconsin doing that? Well, your statement about what we call door-to-door campaigning is exactly right. And uh, in my, when I first raced for the state Senate, I was running against in a very Republican district against an 83-year-old incumbent who had been in for 50 years. And I knocked on 15,000 doors. Wow. And this is what all the young candidates did at that time. That's the advantage we have against them. So I'm out in these cornfields and it was a blast, but it was very lonely at times. And um, this is what I learned, is that if you went up to the door, at least in those days, I think it's changed. Knock on the door, person opens the door, hello, want to make sure you're not a Jehovah's Witness or, you know, what was that sale or the thing where people would... Uh, like an encyclopedia salesperson? Yeah, or yeah, yeah, yeah. Yvonne or whatever. Yeah. And so, you know, I had a standard line. Hi, I'm Russ Feingold. I grew up in Janesville and I live in Middleton with my family and I'm running for the state center. And um, I, you notice that and if people would like go, oh, okay, uh, they usually start close. Thank you very much. And I'd say, and, and do you have any questions? And they'd usually go, no, 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 that's fine. And, and thank you very much. But 
if they wanted to talk to you, I noticed that if I started responding right away, if I started saying, well, the Democrats do this and the Republicans do this, they're like, I don't want to hear that. We want to know, fine, you can be a Democrat, you can be a Republican. We want to know what you're going to do when you get elected to try to help us. That was a really important lesson for me that, that led to my affiliation with John McCain and on bipartisan issues. And it became very clear to me that people in those days wanted you to just get out there and, and try to figure things out. So what I did was I adopted this as part of my career. Not only would I go to all the little towns in my state Senate district, but when I became a U.S. Senator, I pledged on my garage door in my long shot campaign that I would go to every one of Wisconsin's 72 counties every year and hold a town meeting. So even if, whether the county had a million people or 4,000 people, I did that. For 18 years, I did over 1,200 listening sessions. And they really were listening sessions. In other words, I didn't go there and, and give a speech for a half hour. I got to say, hi, everybody. We're here for the listening session. Just fill out a form if you want to talk. You can speak for up to five minutes about whatever you want. I'll respond. We'll go to the next person. And it was fabulous. And so that's, that's how I constantly got new input. And I found when I would go to the caucus in Washington on a Tuesday when the issues are being discussed, I was the one that could always say, I was talking to a guy last Friday who three people said to me, you know, we need this legislation to help people get meals on wheels or whatever it was, you know. So I found that to be the dynamic process. That to me is representation. 1,200, I don't know if people grasp how big a number that is. Yes. I, mean, I don't know, I'm, I'm somewhere near 900 interviews on this podcast. That's over six years almost, well, three, three yeah. a week. Yeah. It's, it's a lot. You can't retain it all. Did you tire of it? Did it stay fresh at all? How, how did you deal with that kind well, of volume of? There were times when it got to be a little much, but basically I found it to be refreshing. So you're in Washington, you listen to all this blather and there's no real input. And then, all right, we're going to go on a two-day tour. We, we would make it fun. So we would get up ridiculously early. The staff was horrified, like four or five in the morning. Go up, do one in the morning, have lunch, do one in the afternoon, do one in the late afternoon. So you've done three already. Go to a nice supper club in northern Wisconsin. Have a brand new old-fashioned. Have some duck with cherry sauce on it, you know. And then the next morning, get up and, and do two more and be home by dinner. So you've done five. And by the end of those five, you've learned a hell of a lot about what people are thinking at that moment. You're learning from them. What is it that's getting through to them from what, what's in Washington? And what you really learn is people really don't want to spend a lot of time thinking about what's going on in Washington. Yeah. Can you think of something that really surprised you? Like when you've done that many, I assume you've heard most questions before you kind of have a way that you answer them, but what came up that, that startled you or surprised you along the way that you can remember? The range of things that people were knowledgeable about. People assumed that, that you know, citizens out there aren't paying attention to things. There would be people and say, what's going on in Sierra Leone right now, Russ? I understand that you're on the Africa subcommittee. I'm interested in Indonesia. I, you know, I, I'm a scientist and I'm concerned about nuclear power plants. It's just the range of things that sure you expect that here in Washington, but you, you know, you may not expect it out there, but in every little town, there's people that are interested in different things. And that always struck me as fascinating and challenging. So for me, if I, I'd say, well, you know, I don't really know anything about that. And then I'd write them a letter. And, and then the next time I was ready, 
uh, for it. It was genuinely raw, the raw material of what people were thinking and concerned about. The other thing that I was struck by, which ended up as a sad thing, was, you know, people were nervous. A lot of people would say, I've never spoken anything like this before. And after a while, they'd get comfortable because I tried to maintain a nice environment. You know, like if a conservative came and started blasting me, people would like start saying, hey, I said, no, no, no. This is supposed to be like this. It was kind of fun. And then what happened, as I've written about in a book I wrote called While America Sleeps, is when the Tea Party came. They systematically and intentionally had a strategy to, to disrupt town meetings like this. And it started in 2009. In fact, it started in the fall after Obama was elected in 2008. They started doing it. And the sad thing I've watched is that people had been coming for years, got scared. These people seemed like they were almost capable of violence and they stopped coming. And so it, it reminded me of what other right-wing regimes in the world have done to intimidate people. And now we're seeing uh, the flower of it in the sad state of our political discourse. You said when you're talking about canvassing that, you know, maybe it was different when you went to a door then, and you now are talking about this change with the Tea Party. How do you characterize the political change that you see with everyday people in this country over this last Trumpist Tea Party phase that we're unfortunately in? What I've sadly seen happen in the last 30 years or so, greatly accelerated by Trump, is we've gone from considering ourselves all Americans first and are part of a community and people are now are choosing up sides. It reminds me of what I call the, the state religion in Wisconsin, the Green Bay Packers. When Mark Adnazio bought the Milwaukee Brewers, he came to see me in Washington. And, you know, I sat down with him and I said, well, good luck, you know, just want you to understand something that even if the Brewers win the World Series for the next 10 years, it will not be as important to people as the next exhibition game that the Packers will play. Oh, no. That's how intense. Well, but I fear that almost the sports attitude of this is my team and you're on that team or something has infected the way people think that they think it's all about being on one side or another, rather than doing what John McCain and I did, which was such a thrill, to come together from the two sides. I fear that what has happened is because of cable news and Fox News and the Internet, that people are siloed, and we everybody knows that this is a phenomenon, that didn't used to exist. And at the same time, the, those that used to be the sort of neutral arbiters, somewhat neutral arbiters, the local newspapers, almost every town of any size, maybe 20,000 in Wisconsin, had their own independent newspaper. They had their own editorial policy. And even if they were Republican, you could go to them and you could say, hey, here's what I'm thinking about this. And then they'd write an editorial. You know, Russ Feingold came by the other day. We usually don't agree with him. But he's got a point about this. They're all gone. Either they've been bought and are not allowed to do their own editorials, or they don't exist. So the whole thing that allowed communities to have a sense of conversation and community, which I was trying to do with these town meetings, has been gutted for a very your side versus my side national politics that's destroying the character of the good aspect of federalism in our country, where different states have different approaches and different histories. It's it's done huge damage to that. It feels to me like it's a little more than two teams. One team is much more reality-based than the other, isn't it? Well, I, of course, would agree with that. I mean, this idea that 
that you're supposed to accept the notion that Joe Biden lost the election. and You're supposed to accept conspiracy theories about pizza place in Washington. You know, that pizza place is, was my grandson's, two-year-old grandson's favorite place. The uh, I'm seven blocks away from it. And I, I pick up this, this QAnon theory. And wait a minute. This is Isaac's favorite restaurant. <laughs> you know, so, yes, uh, that was so loony I couldn't even grasp it. And It's rampant. That sort of stuff is absolutely rampant right now. Yeah. And yes, of course, it's not reality-based. And I am not trained to deal with people who are not reality-based. It's hard. I, I don't know how to do that. You know, I admit that. I'm at the point in my life where it's like, well, I guess other people are going to have to figure that out because I just don't know what to do with people who won't reason. What do you miss the most about being U.S. Senator? Oh, I enjoy the sort of contacts with people at those town meetings. And the, even more sort of the, the, when you go into the town and you're at the, the diner or you, you've gone somewhere and you just have casual conversations with people. You'd go into the McDonald's and there'd be, you know, six or seven guys that meet there every day. And they go, hey, what are you doing here, Fungold? And, you know, I just sit down at the table and I say, what, what, what do you think? What do you think about this? You know, it was fun. And sometimes it was hostile, but generally speaking, it was, uh, you know, I like people. So I'll tell you a story about myself. So, yeah, I was lucky enough to be at a, a good law firm in Madison. And, and in those days, you couldn't do your work on the Internet. You had to go get your law books and you had to hang out in the, in the, in the, li- the law library the whole weekend. I didn't like that. I like to be around people. So that's one of the reasons I went into politics. And so that's the thing that I that still I like is the sort of casual encounters with people. You can just be friendly, but sometimes you learn something about their political views that you might not expect. So, you know, I still have, of course, wonderful time. And I, my wife and I have a lot of things we want to do at this part of our lives. But, you know, that's probably the things that I that I miss the most. I mean, you lost to Ron Johnson and then tried to take him on again and lost both times very narrowly. Do you understand why Wisconsin, such a history of being a progressive state, picked this guy who, I don't know, I don't hold him in very high regard? Uh, Um, I'm not sure I understand it, although I do notice that there's been a change in the tenor of, of the mood in Wisconsin. Wisconsin was a very gentle type of place the whole time I was growing up. Republicans and Democrats would slap each other on the back. Warren Knowles and Gaylord Nelson would go and have a beer together after debating on the floor of the state senate. That was a hallmark of our state. And we were we had a, a very communitarian type of thing. And there was a certain anger that developed a, a sort of anger politics. It's what's going on nationally. It really took seed in Wisconsin. There's something of a myth that it's a progressive state all the time. It is. It's a state that lurches between hard conservatism, Joe McCarthy, people like that, and strong progressivism. And so that's always been the back and forth. You know, people of our generation sort of think of the, the more liberal period. But when I was a little kid, and even before that, there, was, there were no Democrats. And the only time the progressives did anything. So there's always been this tension between the sort of hard-nosed, sort of angry, very conservative, fundamentalist kind of Wisconsin, and then the more liberal part. I compare it to Minnesota, which I believe is more moderate in nature. It's a little more homogenized in, in that way. We're more, Wisconsin's more divided. It seems like he tapped into this anger thing. And, you know, I realized looking back, 
you want an angry senator, I'm not your guy. That's not for me. That's not who I want to be. And in a way, I realized I wasn't the right person to represent them if they want anger. Is that a similar answer for why they would entertain Trump? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. The only thing that makes sense to me is that people were trying to act out some kind of anger they had about whether the world was becoming too diverse for their taste or whether they felt some loss of meaning in their lives. And the other thing that seemed, Trump seemed to enable was everything your mother taught you that was wrong or impolite or wrong, he said was fine. And there was this weird thing. You get permission I, to say whatever the hell you want. Yeah. It gave people permission and encouraged them to be complete jerks. Well, Trump would have been the, the one person that nobody would pay any attention to in my grade school and my high school because he was a complete jerk. And everybody knows that. And yet somehow that became cool with a certain element of the electorate. And now you see like Marjorie Taylor Greene is like an even more extreme example of who can be the most unpleasant person possible. I think I'll vote for that person. <laughs> it's, it's just it doesn't fit my life or my upbringing at all. We need to have the right sort of people to take that on. I'm not sure we have figured it out. We sort of managed with Biden to beat him. But there's Trump again and other Trumpists coming up. What do you think is the strategy or the type of candidates and the types of messages that fit the time? Well, you know, I thought about this a lot. I, I ended up teaching. Fortunately, I was given a job by the dean of the Marquette Law School. And then I taught at Stanford and Yale and Harvard Law Schools over the course of 10 years between 2011 and 2020. And, you know, I'm teaching, but, you know, the students would come to me for office hours, and, which I helped. They rarely ask me about the material. They, they said, <laughs> how can I become a senator? You know, how do I run for office? I know. So I said, all right, well, the first question I have for you is, where are you from? Oh, you know, I'm from Lincoln, Nebraska. Were you willing to consider going back there, even though you're at Stanford Law School? Well, some of them say, yeah, I'd love to. Most of them said, well, I don't know. Most of the actions on the East Coast, the West Coast. And I said, well, for credibility, if there's a way you can go back, and become part of the community, whether you end up in politics or not, it would be much better. So this is my theory as, as this has all occurred. You know, at your high school graduations, there's always the valedictorian, salutatorian, the class superstars, right? Well, when I was a kid, people like that would go to the University of Wisconsin-Madison. That's the only place I ever wanted to go. Now they go to Harvard. Now they go to Stanford. They go to Yale. And you know what? They almost never come back. And people notice it. In other words, there's a woman that wrote this book called The Politics of Resentment about Wisconsin, right about the time in 2016. There appears to be a resentment that people whose community supported them, supported their families, go off and never come back. And that's coupled with the corporations taking the companies out of the towns, if you go to a Rotary Club now, if even to the extent that they really do well in some of those towns, you know, the bank used to be locally owned. The newspaper used to be locally owned. There's none of that. They've been hollowed out. You don't really have that sense of community. Um, and, and so for me, going, I always understood and felt that I should just go home. I wanted to raise my family in Wisconsin. I wanted to be there. And I understood the, the nature of the place because I was from there. I'm not saying you can't go somewhere else, 
I mean, if you're from Manhattan, you might want to go somewhere else. <laughs> the opportunity to go somewhere. But I, I believe that there is this sort of us and them feeling about the elites. A guy that I was at Oxford with, Michael Sandel, has written a lot about elitism and some of the dangers of too aggressive a pursuit of elitism on the part of those on the left. I'm not innocent. I mean, I'm a badger, but, you know, I went, to, I went to Oxford, I went to Harvard, and I'm proud of that. I think there's some problems there. During that time where you were teaching in law schools post-Senate, how much were you thinking about the changes that were going on in the courts that you obviously are tackling now at American Constitution Society? There's been this concerted effort to move the courts to the right for a long period of time that's been pretty successful, not just at the Supreme Court level, but below it. Was that something that you were pretty aware of as you were teaching in these law schools? Is that a topic that came up? Well, I'd have to break the 10 years in two parts. I would say, no, I was not as aware as I should have been in the early years because they hadn't really started this, the steal, as I call it. Trump likes to talk about the steal. Well, Had to be after Obama, I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, it started with Obama yeah. because they got the majority and refused to confirm all those courts of appeals. And then they, when Trump got in, they filled it. And, of course, they stole the Scalia seat under Obama. So that was the whole progressive movement and all of the liberals and even conservatives didn't realize that people would be willing to do such damage to the legal system, to the courts. But then once Trump came in, it became apparent. And so, yes, between 2017 and 2020, I was not aware of it. And, and then when I was approached to become president of the American Constitution Society, I thought, well, this is exactly what I should do next if I can, because this is one of the greatest battles of our time. And it's a, frankly one of the greatest achievements of the Biden administration is was off to a decent start of trying to reverse that. But the Supreme Court is a real mess for, for a long time. It took a while for a lot of us to understand how ruthless the right would be in terms of compromising the independence of the courts. Can you explain what the American Constitution Society is for those who are not aware of it? Yeah. So at the time of the famous Bush v. Gore Supreme Court decision, handing the election to George, George Bush on a partisan basis, a lot of the leading progressive scholars in the country and students got together and said, you know, this Federalist Society, which was 20 years old at this time, has mounted an attempt to take over the courts by the far right, and we need to do something to counter it. And so people like Lawrence Tribe of Harvard, Ron Klain, the chief of staff of the president previously, they created this organization originally at Georgetown Law School. And so it's about 20 years old. And over time, it sort of began as largely an intellectual challenge to the rights claims of originalism and textualism and sort of a lot of programming and articles and efforts to try to organize progressives and others to say this isn't necessarily the right way to interpret the Constitution. But as time went on, this became the second piece, which is a very broad network of chapters. So there's an ACS chapter in almost every law school. I just visited ones in Florida, Nebraska, Wisconsin, all over the country, every state. As well as in 42 states, there are lawyer chapters. So groups of people that come together as practicing lawyers who have been critical in identifying the people that the Biden administration has, has used as potential nominees. So it's basically the progressive network 
of people interested in law and the rule of law and the legal system. And the third piece is really advocacy, which has grown. We are only a 501c3, so we don't advocate specific laws, but we are advocates on issues like getting the president to commute all death sentences at the federal level, trying to get the, the White House to acknowledge that the ERA, ERA has been properly ratified. We are strongly advocating for judicial reform in light of the theft of the Supreme Court. So we work with other groups, civil rights groups and others that are concerned about this as a coalition to try to advance those causes. So organization really has those kind of three elements. We try to get people to get to the other parts of it by having a national convention as we have today. And we'll have a, a very good convention this year with some top speakers, including Keith Ellison, the attorney general of Minnesota, and others. Last year, we had Justice Sotomayor. So, you know, it's a lot of it's a lot of legal content, but it's also material that is very accessible to non-lawyers. So that's what it is. When I hear the American Constitution Society discussed or the Federalist Society, the right wing counterpart, a lot of people lament the larger budget, the longer tenure, the success on the other side. And I think mostly previous to you coming in, have looked at ACS as not sufficiently aggressive, not raising as much money as it should, and also starting up organizations around it, picking up pieces of what maybe could have fit within a larger American Constitution Society. How do you view like what you picked up as an organization and what are you trying to turn it into over time? Well, you know, to be fair, basically the way you just described the way people have viewed ACS sometimes was my understanding when I was approached. I thought, okay, I, you know, I had appeared with ACS chapters at various law schools, but it was just clear that they were outgunned in terms of the resources and the like. When I was approached by people, I thought, this is a very good concept, but it needs updating and it needs a more aggressive posture. So I think we've changed the organization, but keep a couple of things in mind, in fairness. They had a 20-year start. They had been doing it for 20 years before ACS was created. People did not really understand the power of the Federal Society until Trump came in and stole those court seats. And said, I'm going to only pick people from their list. People had no idea. This is many years after they were founded. So it's not like they got up to where they were right away. They had the long view. And we now realize we have to have the long but I will say this, any fair observer would have to look at what we're doing right now and say, wait a minute, they are effective. We are the principal group that is proposing names and vetting people for the federal courts. This administration is ahead of Trump at this point. It's going to have to pick up the pace in terms of these federal judgeships. And the right is getting upset. The federal society is getting upset because we are effective. And we are the ones that are pushing them to get rid of the blue slips so they can confirm more people. This is an historic opportunity. So I'm trying to use some of my political background and advocacy background to make the organization do this. And I think somebody who is a fair observer would have to say, wait a minute, it looks like things are different. But I don't disagree that for a long time, I think people perceive this as more of an academic type of organization, although the academic piece is very important and very exciting. It's not enough for people in light of the rights power. We don't need as much money as the right. We don't want a president of the United States to say, well, you get to pick the judges. We think that's wrong. 
We believe that the president and the Senate get to do that. So, you know, about a third of the people that have been confirmed have been people we've recommended. But we see ourselves as the only ones that have the true pipeline network, grassroots network in the communities where our lawyer groups go out and create a working group with African-American groups, Latino groups, LGBTQ plus groups, union groups, plaintiffs groups, and say, well, who would you like to see on the bench? And as a result, the diversity of the people that Biden has chosen is off the charts. 75% women as opposed to Trump, 25%. 70% people of color, 50% women of color. That's our work. And so we're cooking with gas now. It took a while. Do you, as a former senator, avail yourself of some opportunity to talk to and lobby senators that you know and say, these are the things that are our priorities? Do you talk to Dermot and say, this blue slip thing has to change? I mean, are you having those personal conversations or how does that work? Well, we don't lobby specifically because we are only a 501c3. So when it comes to particular nominees, yep. particular proposals, no. But when it comes to general policies, like blue slips, you know, like whether or not the filibusters should be the way it is, yes, uh, we do. And I have had those conversations. Why not have a, a C4 then? And why not expand to broaden the purview of what you can do and would be able to do? I think it makes you too partisan. I think it makes you spend a huge amount of times on particular races, be consumed by the elections. Why are you worried about being partisan when the other side is so avowedly ideological? Well, look, we're not the only organization. We play a particular role. Obviously, there's an enormous amount of activity in the... And people know, I mean, people know you're on the progressive, the Democratic side. I mean, it's not a hidden thing about... it's, It's not automatic. We are a nonpartisan group. We certainly do not only recommend people that are are Democrats, and I don't think we should. I don't really believe in that when it comes to having judges. Yes, probably more of our people would be Democrats than not, but, you know, they're supposed to be judges. And so we think it makes sense for, instead of trying to reinvent the wheel, do what we are a niche group that can do, which is have that network, have the grassroots process, and then take it all the way up to the White House or the Senate, where as a leader of the organization, I can say, look, we know this blue slip policy really makes no sense. Let's get rid of it. I've noticed that you've written a lot, Newsweek, Daily Coast, a range of- New York Times, Washington Yep, yep you're, what's the state of the of play on that? The last thing I saw was something where Durbin said something about uh, if someone's using this policy to be racist or sexist, or then they're going to not pay attention to that kind of blue slip situation. But what's the state of the game on that? Well, this is an interesting thing because unlike uh, other rules that we think should be changed, for example, we have 30 hours of post-closure debate on Court of Appeals nominees and only two hours for district. That requires a formal rule change. This is completely up to the chairman of the Judiciary Committee. I sat next to Dick Durbin on Judiciary for about 16 years, and um, I think he definitely feels that this is probably not a practice that should continue. But he's trying to do it in a methodical way. I hope he doesn't wait too long, but I'm pretty sure it would be a mistake for him to only limit it to the kind of situation you just described. There are situations where a senator has actually recommended somebody to the White House and that person is chosen. 
and then refuses to return a blue slip. There are situations where two Republican senators and one is willing to sort of make a deal and say, okay, here's some people I want, here's some people you want, and the other one is not holding. So I think what the chairman is doing is saying, look, if everybody cooperates and plays fair here, we won't have to get rid of it. But I do think he's ready to get rid of it or modify it if it's needed. Now, the, the problem here is you can't wait too long. It's all about who throughput. If they are allowed to delay, we get fewer judges done. That's exactly right. And Trump can, was able to confirm 234 judges in four years because in the third year, he had over 100. Well, we're in the third year now. The way I described it to probably unfair to Philadelphia Eagle fans, because I actually was rooting for them, is, you know, they were really ahead at halftime. Look good. This is halftime. you got to complete the deal. So my view is that you've got to be aggressive. And this is maybe the way to think about it. You know, a lot of my career was about money and politics. Money affects all politics. Well, that's true. But what this is about is time. What matters in the Senate is time. And here's an uh, interesting twist that should give us hope in terms of what could be done. Typically, if the Democrats had held the House, the Senate would have spent a lot of time on legislation. But it would be dumb to spend all kinds of time crafting big pieces of legislation that are just going to die in the House. What does that mean? There's a lot of time available to work on judges. And there really will be no, it would be an historic mistake. The Democrats would be chumps to not get rid of the blue slips and use the time that they have available to surpass what Trump did. And that means this year. Do we have a sense of the Trump judicial appointments and how bad they are, how uniformly terrible, or did he make some good appointments? I haven't done a systematic review. This is my impression. There are people that are less extreme than you might have expected. By and large, though, he has caused courts like the Fifth Circuit and others to be populated by so many extreme people that you end up with panels of three that are very extreme and it's very dangerous and certain individual ones that are are particularly dangerous. So I would say by and large, they are ideologues and they have life terms and they tend to be young. It was a real blow to the legitimacy of the judiciary. And I like to think that the people that have gotten through and that we've recommended are not partisans. They're not ideologues or people that are going to try to be judges. And and but at the same time, reflect the fact that the Constitution has to reflect what this country is in the 21st century, not the 18th century. I saw reflected in, in something you wrote recently, this notion that we're kind of in a battle between multiracial democracy and an authoritarian outlook. And and with that lens, I mean, obviously this battle is huge and you see the courts being so important if you have a president or other leaders who are willing to push the boundaries of the rules or go well past that, like Trump did with January 6th, try to use parts of the electoral college to change results in a way that doesn't reflect popular sentiment. You also see that in other realms. Like one of the things that you mentioned, you have a book out about of a constitutional convention, which if they had enough majorities at some point, they could actually wholesale rewrite the constitution. The kind of thing that's really happened in other countries that have had authoritarian right-wing 
leaders over a period of time that we've seen, we see around the world. Talk about what you're thinking in this context about that big battle that we have going on and, and how the legal system and your organization play into that. Yeah, Peter Prenderville was a student of mine at Stanford Law School, and I wrote this book called The Constitution in Jeopardy. And you're really getting at, at sort of the, the point here, which is, yes, it, it is about partly the concern that the right is using a manipulated system to try to call a constitutional convention, which is a legal mechanism. As you pointed out, in a number of countries, they have used a legal constitutional mechanism to create an authoritarian changes in the Constitution. So it's a mistake to say that this is like January 6th or like the independent state legislature theory or election denial, because this one's legal. On the other hand, the way they want to do it is, is highly wrong. And what they want to do is count petitions, you know, some of them from before the Civil War about slavery. They want to say, oh, no, 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 you can limit the, the convention to certain topics. You can't do that. But the point you were really getting at that is so important is the only people that get to react to these petitions, if there's 34 of them, is Congress. The president has no role. It appears the Supreme Court has no role. And last fall, Jody Arrington of Texas, conservative congressman, he introduced a resolution. He said, there's enough applications now. Congress has to call this. So the scenario I try to draw for people is, let's say Georgia had gone the other way. Let's say we were listening to uh, Senator, uh, who ran against Warnock again? Uh, uh, a football player. I've already repressed it. Happily. <laughs> Anyway, let's say the Senate had gone Republican. What they could do is simply pass a resolution, each house, and say, like they did with denying the election to a lot of these people, just saying there's enough here. Convention goes. One of the uh, fifth chapter of our book, and like I like to say is, if you read nothing else, read that. It's entitled What Donald Trump and the Tea Party Couldn't Do. It tells exactly what they're training to do, which is to gut the federal government's powers, and allow states to override congressional acts, like a John C. Calhoun nullification process. That's one jeopardy. But the other jeopardy that we talk about is that the Constitution has hardly ever been changed, and it needs to be changed. You, you need to have, we have the hardest Constitution in the world to amend. And so we need to get rid of the Electoral College. We need to have a right to vote. And so we talk about trying to figure out a way to amend Article 5 of the Constitution. I want to make one other broader point. You said something very smart there at the beginning, which is this isn't just about this convention thing. This is their overall agenda. In fact, Steve Bannon has recently embraced this constitutional convention thing as one of his top priorities because they know some days Congress may change more. Someday maybe the Supreme Court will change. So what they want to do is gut the Constitution itself as sort of the ultimate weapon. That's what they call it the ultimate weapon. So that's why we wrote the book. And, and some people say, oh, my God, we've got enough to worry about already. And I go, well, you know, I know that, but <laughs> this is serious. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future course of this country, given this battle and the funding and the determination of, I don't know, the sort of John Birch right wing power that's taken over one party, taken over the Republican Party, and just seems to be willing to continue to fight until they get their way and remake the country in a hard right image. I mean, what do you think about our future? Well, I mean, I think your description is right. People should understand that what happened with the Republican Party is it was subjected to an unfriendly takeover. This is not the Republican Party that I grew up to know. And as Elizabeth Cheney is the perfect example of how it was a takeover. 
So that's what's happened. And I will tell you that I was very pessimistic about where we are at heading into the elections this year. I am feeling much better now. I think that the Biden administration is doing some amazing things of pulling off legislative and judicial confirmations and basically what he did in Ukraine, doing things that make you proud to be you know, supporting our government, which is an attitude that has become very rare. So I'm feeling better right now. I see that the, the we've been brutally tested, but at the moment we're responding to the test. But the only thing that's going to make it work in the long run is, as you suggest, is that these extremists are repudiated. And that has to be done by the Republicans. That has to be done by somebody like Liz Cheney or somebody to get leadership of the party so we can have a two-party system again. I mean, I wouldn't vote like her at all, overall. But that is what's needed. It doesn't have to be a two-party system. It has to be a system where the main two parties are not people that are trying to destroy democracy or one of the parties is. They're trying to destroy democracy. So how does ACS fit into that fight exactly? Well, that's this was our theme for the past year is defending democracy, democracy's moment of truth. We are extremely active at the state and local level now, working with how judges are selected, uh, protecting secretaries of state's offices, uh, coalescing with attorneys general, helping people realize that they have to vote all the way down the ballot, organizing poll workers through the law schools. So we are engaged in what we call a run vote work initiative, which is as important as our national path to the bench initiative, which I've already talked about. So this has to do with all the state level stuff that, you know, frankly, a few years ago, I, we might not have said this because a few years ago we knew about voter suppression. That was very serious. But who had ever heard of election subversion? We are nimble. We are not one issue. We were able to immediately respond through our student chapters, through our lawyer chapters, through our academics, through our national programming to say we are one of the few organizations that can be active in every state to try to protect democracy. And that's one of our three priorities. The other one is the path to the bench that I just mentioned. And the third one is the need for truth and racial healing and transformation in this country to tell the truth about the racist and other realities of our constitution and our history. I've talked to a lot of people who are running progressive organizations over the course of a couple of years. What have you learned about running American constitution society? That's quite different than running a Senate office or a state Senate office. What is it like being an executive of this kind of of organization that you could share with other people who do that? New experience for me and real challenging. I've never reported to a board of directors before. <laughs> I've never had a situation where the goal wasn't just to advance the, the leader. In other words, you know, when you're a senator, all the staffs, you know, they're not trying to have their own identities. In fact, they you, know, you want to make sure that the you know, sort of the senator gets credit for it so people will vote for the senator again. This is not what this is. This is an organization where, yes, I, I play a role like this and speaking for the organization, but many other people do. Zanelle October is our executive vice president. She's been with the organization far longer than I have, and she's a marvelous spokesperson for us. And we have experts. Uh, for example, there's a woman named Lindsay Langholz, who is a, sort of an expert on the Equal Rights Amendment. And Christopher DeRocher of our organization is, is the guy that's really understanding working with the advocates on the death penalty issue. So... It's been a really great experience for me. I love it that instead of it sort of about worrying about everything that might be said about me, it's trying to lift up all of these people and especially all those people out of these chapters, all these brilliant young law students, all these lawyers. 
And so it's it's fun being part of sort of a an atmosphere where people are, are constantly trying to help people with their new careers. I was just, as I said, in Nebraska, where I got to meet all these young law students from Creighton and University of Nebraska Law School. You know, that's what being in this kind of a organization allows you to do is to is to help the next generation to get ready to to fight the good fight. So it's been great. It seems like it's pretty lucky for an organization like this to land a U.S. senator, lawyer to run it. How much longer do you want to do that? Is it something that you're tiring of or do you want to do it for a long time? You're not a kid anymore. What are you thinking? I'm not a kid anymore, but (laughs) I'm enjoying it. And I I guess I'd say I'm going to do it as long as I enjoy it and as long as people enjoy having me do it. But I, I am at the moment feeling very happy and excited about it. You know, everybody wants to feel useful, especially as you get older. I feel I feel useful and I feel respected and I feel like people enjoy what we're trying to do. So it's good work. It's a good organization. I'm glad you're there. Is there something I should have asked you that I failed to? I don't think so. You could ask me about my my slipping on the ice and how I need to go to the doctor to deal with it. But. <laughs> And I are going to go, that's the next thing we're going to do. Well, you postponed um, the interview because of that slip. That's how, right. How are you feeling? I'm doing better. It's going to take a little while. Well, you, did I, you I t- thought I could whine on your podcast from that's. I think you're entitled to, and you had to stand up to because yeah, you're uncomfortable. You're starting to seize up. All right. Well, it was wonderful being on the show. Thank you very much. Uh, I think I've heard wonderful things about the podcast, so thank you. Please invite me again. That was former Senator Feingold of Wisconsin. He is at acslaw.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.